Um, just to remember, a reminder to folks who are on the live stream, if you could just type your name into the little um, chat box so we know that you're there. Uh, and feel free to send in any questions that way as well. Um, uh, I know I, I was out of town a few weeks ago when uh, we talked about uh, the Blessed Mother and uh, her role in the incarnation, the life of Jesus, and just salvation history um, in general. And I don't know if we'll get to this more, I think, when we talk about the church and sort of mm -hmm. the church triumphant. Just the, uh, as Catholics, um, one of the ways that we pray is by asking the saints to pray for us. So just as I would ask you to pray for me or, and vice versa, we can ask those who are already in heaven who now stare into the very face of God to pray for us. Um, and so there's a whole tradition of having you know, patron saints of, of, of various prayers that we can ask these men and women and angels who are in heaven now to, to intercede for us uh, before God. And given the Blessed Mother's role in salvation history that you guys looked at a few weeks ago, um, we believe that her prayers for us are especially powerful. So Mary is a very sure and a strong person to turn to and to ask her to pray for us. So one of a prayer that you'll hear Catholics pray all the time is, is the Hail Mary that I know Larry used a few uh, weeks ago, I think. Um, it's in our book here. If, if you don't know it, I think it's like page 20-something. Oh, shoot, I just had it. Yep, 34. Um, and essentially, the prayer just begins with the greeting that the angel Gabriel gave to Mary at the moment of the Annunciation, and then continues by um, asking her to pray for us. So we'll use that prayer today. Again, if you don't know it, it's on page 34 in this book. And uh, we'll pray with that, and then turn it over to Larry. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Hail Mary, full of, full grace, of grace, the Lord, the Lord is, is with thee. thee. Blessed, blessed art thou, thou among women, and blessed, blessed is the fruit, fruit of thy womb, womb Jesus. Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother, Mother of God. God. Pray, Pray for, for us sinners, sinners now, now and at the hour of our death. death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Right. Thank you, Father. We're right back, Michael. Question about anything? So we spent the last few sessions looking at second person of the Trinity, the incarnation, looking at Jesus. And so today we're going to go on to the Holy Spirit, grace and justification. So justification is a fancy word for um, how we get um, in the right relation with God. Right? So how we become, um, and, and so in Catholic terminology, how we get into a state of grace. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll hopefully, if I get there, end with that. But first on the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, so we say in the creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Right? Um, and the Holy Spirit is God, like God the Father, God the Son, and therefore equally to be worshipped and adored. Right? There's not um, the, the Holy Spirit, um, just like the Son, doesn't, it's not as if he has a different will than the Father. Right? So the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have one and the same um, intellect, knowing everything, and one and the same will, loving all creation. But in a special way, we attribute love to the Holy Spirit because in the Trinity, he's the love. He proceeds um, from the Father and the Son as the love between the Father and the Son. And so we attribute to the Holy Spirit everything that has to do with love. Just as we attribute to the Son um, wisdom and to the Father um, creation omnipotence. Obviously, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, omnipotent. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, wise. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love. But nevertheless, all the works of love we're going to speak of with regard to the Holy Spirit. Okay. 
So the Holy Spirit is sent into our hearts that we might receive new life as sons of God. That's from, um, from St. Paul. Okay. So we've been looking at the, um, at the incarnation, right? And that's, we could say, the mission or sending of the Son. In the fullness of time, St. Paul says, God sent his Son, right? So that's at the Annunciation 19, uh, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 plus. Um, and we also speak of the Holy Spirit being sent. Right? The Father's not sent. He's the one who sends right? the Son, and the Father and Son together send the Spirit into the world, into our hearts. Right? And yes, it's something that we attribute in a particular way to Pentecost, but it's happening continually. Right? So the Holy Spirit is sent now into our hearts if we love Jesus, if we love God, and we're in a state of grace. Okay, so the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct but inseparable. When the Father sends his Son, he also sends the Spirit. Right? It's impossible for the Son and the Spirit to be separated from one another. And um, both are sent for the same purpose, to make us sons and daughters of God, right, and to bring us into the divine life. And so the Spirit, in a particular way, is sent so that we can have the same relation to God the Father that Jesus does. And so as Jesus called him Father, right, so we too, through the power of the Spirit, we can't, just by nature, by creation, we're creatures of God, right? The Spirit is sent to give us the spirit of sonship right, that Jesus had and to share that with us. Right, the Spirit's invisible. Right? We can't see the Spirit, but we ought to have it. And most Catholics, it may be you ask them, you know, do you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit? It might be, I, I, don't, I would be hesitant to ask that question because it might be a depressing answer. Um, nobody's saying yes. But, um, but the answer ought to be yes, that we ought to have a a very close, intimate relation with the Holy Spirit because he dwells in our heart and guides us. Guides us in everyday life, not just in the difficult things, but in the little things too. And so it's, it's important that we get to know the Spirit who dwells in us and let him guide us and teach us. Okay, yeah, obviously difficult, though, because he's invisible, and his voice doesn't sound out loud, right, like mine, but um, is only discerned in prayer. Right? So if somebody doesn't pray or pray regularly, right, you're not going to get to know the Spirit or the Father. Okay. All right, why? Even the word Spirit, what does it mean? So it comes from Hebrew, um, ruach, which is breath. Or wind. Right, so that's the, um, the origin of the word. Um, yeah, holy, so in, in the Hebrew Bible, um, breath or wind of God. And that has the idea of a, a movement. Right? So the Spirit is um, he's sent to us. Right? And he then moves us to love. Right? So the, um, he's also, sometimes Jesus refers to him as the gift, right? He's um, Jesus' gift to us. 
the Spirit. There are lots of symbols of the Holy Spirit that we see in Scripture. Um, living water. So Jesus speaks about um, at the well. He, he, um, he's going through Samaria. In, this is chapter 4 of John's Gospel. And he's, it's the middle of the day and he's thirsty. And so he goes to a well and there's a woman at the well. And he asked her for a drink, and she's really surprised because he's Jewish, and she's a Samaritan. And then she's a woman, and he's a man. And, and then and he says, you know, but if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water that I would give to you. And so that's a reference to grace and the Spirit. Yeah, living water. And also when Jesus died on the cross, and he died, and to make sure he was dead, a centurion pierced his side, right, to pierce his heart. And there came out, what? Water and blood. Right? And so it, the water represents baptism, but also we could say grace and the spirit. Right? And the blood representing the Eucharist. Okay. Um, oil is also a sign of the spirit. So olive oil. And that's why... At the Easter Vigil, when you get confirmed, you'll be confirmed with olive oil um, traced on your forehead in the sign of a cross, and that's a symbol of the Spirit who is really given to you through that sacrament, confirmation. Cloud is another symbol of the Holy Spirit, a cloud that overshadows. So a cloud, both um, it, it, it shows the mystery, right? But it also, in some sense, shows the presence of that mystery. Um, so in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies had um, a cloud descend over it um, to show God's presence um, and the presence of the Spirit. Mount Sinai, a cloud descended on it. And um, at the Annunciation, not visibly, but um, the angel said that the Spirit would overshadow Mary like that cloud. Right, so Mary's the one most full of the Spirit. We'll come back to that in a minute. And it was um, also um, symbolized by the dove that rested on Jesus when he was baptized by John the Baptist. Right? The dove as a, sign, a symbol of peace. Right? The Holy Spirit gives peace. Um, and that's a, before when I was saying um, we discern the Spirit in our hearts, um, and it's not so easy to discern, right, because he doesn't speak out loud, but that's the best way of discerning that it's the Spirit um, speaking when we feel that peace. Yeah. A peace, a supernatural peace, a peace different than the peace that this world gives. In the Creed, we also say that the prophets were inspired by the Spirit. Not that it, the Spirit does something without the Father and the Son, but we attribute it to the Spirit, precisely that action of um, moving our minds and hearts. All right, so all the prophets... And, and sacred writers of um, the Old and New Testament were inspired by the Spirit. And then um, John the Baptist was sent by the Spirit to do his baptism of repentance. Right? So basically all the prophets being sent by the Spirit, and in a particular way, John the Baptist as the last prophet of Israel. But then he pointed out Jesus. He says, I baptize with water, but the one coming after me Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Spirit and with fire, right? So that's Jesus' role to give the Spirit. Other prophets receive it, and hopefully we receive the Spirit too, but it's proper to Jesus alone to give the Spirit, right? 
right? But it's also given to the, he gives that to the church through her sacraments. So the sacraments also give the spirit because it's Jesus giving them through the sacraments. Okay, of all the saints, the one most filled with the Holy Spirit is Mary. Right? So we can think of Mary as the perfect temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? So Mary never did anything contrary to the Spirit's guidance. And it was the Spirit right, that overshadowed her to make her um, a virgin mother of God. And the Spirit guided her um, all through her life. Right. So we could think of Mary as the, I don't know, the masterpiece of the Holy Spirit's work. Right? And we, part of the reason why we want to have devotion to Mary is that she shows us, she helps us in that. Right? That relationship that she has, she wants to help us to have also. Mary was present at Pentecost. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a minute. Okay. Jesus, even more than Mary, we could say infinitely more, is the one infinitely, supremely anointed by the Spirit. Right? And that's the meaning of his title, Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, I think a lot of people maybe think like that's his last name. Right? So it's not his last name. It means the Messiah. Right? So in Hebrew, Messiah means anointed one. And anointed with what? Not with olive oil, but with the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the meaning of speaking of Jesus as Messiah or Christ. And it's the idea that his humanity from the beginning was um, absolutely full of the Spirit. Um, and so he can give the Spirit that he in his humanity was full of, and in his divinity, he and the Spirit proceeds from him with the Father. Okay? So Christ's whole work is a, we could say, a joint mission with the Spirit. The Gospels give us little hints of it. And at times, so for example, after he was baptized by John the Baptist, the, um, Luke tells us, impelled by the Spirit, he went into the desert to fast and pray for 40 days. And so scripture is saying that Jesus, so you might ask, well, why does Jesus need to be moved by the Spirit? He's, he's God just as much as the Spirit. That's true. But he's also modeling for us, right, to be docile to the, the movements of the Spirit in us. All right, let's get Pentecost. So Pentecost, um, Jesus <clears throat> Yeah. Step back a second. Jesus um, chose the day of Pentecost to give the Spirit. And it's interesting because he, has, he had already died, right? risen from the dead, and ascended out of this world on the 40th day. So after um, Passover, he, um, he rose right, on Easter Sunday and remained present in the world, revealing himself to his apostles of 40 days. 40 days, he ascended out of this world and 10 days later sent the Spirit. And he told the apostles and other disciples before he ascended, stay here in Jerusalem to receive the gift of the Spirit. And he chose a Jewish feast that we may not be so familiar with. So Pentecost, like Jesus chose Passover to institute the Eucharist, 
and to die. He chose another Jewish feast, Pentecost, to give the spirit. And it's, um, does anybody know what Jewish Pentecost is? So it's 50 days after the Passover. And so um, at the Passover, Jews crossed, they left Egypt, right? They crossed the Red Sea, and God parted the ways, and they walked to, does anybody know where did they go to? End up after 50 days where they sealed the covenant with God? Probably no. Mount Sinai, right? So they went to, so they walked from, basically from Egypt to Mount Sinai, and they got to Mount Sinai on the 50th day after leaving Egypt. And that's when they sealed the covenant with God, and God gave them the Torah, the law. All right? And, um, and they became the people of God. Um, and so Jews celebrate that feast every year, Pentecost, as the feast of the giving of the Torah, or the law. And Jews call it Pentecost as well? They call it the Feast of Weeks meaning seven weeks, so seven weeks, 49 days. So it's the same, same idea, but um, and yeah, they, they won't know the Christian term. Is there a feast that the Jews celebrate um, at the same site where the upper room is today? They don't celebrate in that site, no, but they, they celebrate wherever they are, right, in, in a synagogue. But it used to be a pilgrimage feast, right? So that's going to be part of the story. So Acts and the Pentecost took place in that upper room, which you can visit if you go to Jerusalem today. It's obviously not the same building 2,000 years later, rebuilt by the Crusaders, but it's reasonable to think it's likely in the same spot. And, mm -hmm. Sorry, um, do they believe that like, King David's bones? That's right. That's right. So if you go to, um, to that site, you'll find Jews, Orthodox Jews, going to the same place to visit David's tomb, which is uh, just below... The, um, the upper room. Is there always a lot of conflict there between Christians and Jews in the, on that site? I mean, there wasn't. I never witnessed conflict. We went there frequently. We lived for a year in Jerusalem. Okay. But the tragedy is that's the place where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper and, and instituted the Eucharist and the priesthood. And it's impossible for Mass ever to be celebrated where Jesus instituted the Eucharist. And it was a mosque at some time, and now it's, I think, um, held by the by Israel, but um, um, I never saw any conflict there. But it's, it's kind of, a, yes, it's, yeah. it's a sign um, in some way the fact that it can't be used properly for, um, um, yeah, for any religious worship. <laughs> so it was the place um, where Jesus instituted the, I mean, the, when you think about it, after Calvary and the empty tomb, it would be the holiest place on earth in some way, and um, together with Bethlehem. And Nazareth, and um, and it's also the place that was chosen for Pentecost. So the disciples met in the upper room after um, um, after the Passion, right? That's where they were on Easter Sunday, and that's where they were on the Sunday following, right? When the doubting Thomas um, sticks his hands into Jesus' side, and that's where they were fifty days later after um, Easter um, for the Feast of Pentecost, right? And um, we read about this. In Acts chapter 2. So maybe I'll just pull it up. Yeah, so um, this the Acts is written 
by Luke, the same Luke who wrote his gospel. It's like the continuation in the life of the church. And so this he puts in his second chapter, and it's fundamental for showing us kind of the birth of the church. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, right, the upper room. And suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind. And that too is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, right? Because the word spirit means wind in, in Hebrew and in Greek also. And filled the house where they were sitting and there appeared as tongues of fire distributing and resting on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them um, utterance. In other words, gave them, so what are these tongues? Um, well, let me keep on reading. They were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews from every nation under heaven. That's because Pentecost, like the Passover, was a, pil a pilgrimage feast. And that meant that Jews, if they could, had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. You couldn't celebrate Pentecost, um, in, at least in the full way, in Nazareth or in, you know, in Bethlehem. You had to go to Jerusalem for it. And this is why there were Jews there from all through the, the Mediterranean world, because Jews at this time didn't only live, maybe half of the Jews lived in Israel, and the other half lived throughout the Mediterranean um, through the Roman Empire. And that would be um, Rome, North Africa, um, Syria, um, Turkey, etc. And they spoke other languages, right? They might, some of them would know Hebrew if they studied, but most of them simply knew their vernacular language of the place where they lived. Him. And they were bewildered because each one heard the apostles and disciples speaking in his own language. Right? So this is the miracle of speaking in tongues. So it's not um, speaking gibberish. It's actually speaking in Latin. Right? So the apostles didn't know Latin. Right? They didn't know. Um, they probably knew Greek. They certainly um, knew some Greek. Right? They had to preach in it. But um, they wouldn't have known know, the different languages of all the, the people who were there. Um, and the people were amazed. Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and people of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, etc. In other words, um, so this was a miracle of speaking in foreign languages by people who had no knowledge of those languages to be a miraculous sign, a sign of the Spirit's work. Right, now, you might think that's a kind of odd sign. Um, it might be. I mean, learning language is a ton of work. And so you might... The first time this happened, yeah, it's the first time. I don't know of any case in the Old Testament of a miracle like this or... Um, It's the, fantastic. So it's the opposite of the Tower of Babel. The, at the Tower of Babel, um, it was pride, right? So because they wanted to make a tower to rival God, right? And um, the result being the division of languages and the inability to communicate. So what's happening here, that's great that you put that together, because this is meant to be an, a counter sign. So pride divides, right? And that happens still today, right? It's not just Babel in some ways is a symbol of what happens always, right? And pride and tribalism divides nations and peoples and even in the same nation. And, and we can see from this that the Spirit's task is the opposite, right? The Spirit's task in every time and place is to bring together those who are separated culturally, linguistically, politically, ethnically, you name it. Um, and the church is born of that 
um, ingathering. Right? So the um, Pentecost is at one and the same time the gift of the Spirit and the birth of the church. And we'll see why in just a minute. So what does this mean? And so some people mock them, They've, and they're filled with new wine. And Peter stands up and says, Men of Judea and all you who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. That would mean nine in the morning. Um, can't be drunk, it's only nine in the morning. That's right, that's right. <laughs> but this was spoken by the prophet Joel. And Peter goes on to read a prophecy of one of the Hebrew prophets, Joel, um, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Little note here. He says last days. What do we think of when we hear last days? End of the world, right? The apocalypse. That's not what it usually means in the Bible. The last days usually refers to the time of the Messiah. In other words, the last and his church. So the last 2,000 years are what the Bible speaks of as the last days. Yeah. So I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh in the last days, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and I will do this on maidservants, um, etc. Um, and what's basically what the prophecy is saying that in Israel there were prophets, right? But they were only a tiny minority. It was a special charism that only very few people received. And at the time of Jesus, it had died out. Right? There weren't prophets for centuries, um, at least not, in, not prophets like the great prophets of the Old Testament. Um, and they got anointed. right? So in the Old Testament, there were three kinds of people anointed, um, prophets, priests, and kings. So David, Saul. Um, and what um, Joel is saying is that in the last times, that is in the time of the Messiah, the Spirit will be poured out more liberally, more gen generously, and it will be given not to simply, you know, I don't know, a very small class of people, but to everyone, men and women, old and young, um, etc., um, free and slaves. And so this is, corresponds to um, the sacrament of confirmation. So the sacrament of confirmation is given to everyone. And it's got the sign of anointing with, with olive oil, um, which represents anointing with the Holy Spirit, that in Israel only few could receive. Right? So that's what Joel is speaking about. He's speaking about a, a more generous giving out of the Spirit in the time of the Messiah. And Peter then goes on to say, this is what's being fulfilled here and now, right before you. And then he, so he, he says other things. He speaks about Jesus being um, the one, Jesus rose from the dead, etc. Um, and then the, um, and to repent. And, and the people who heard this um, said, what should we do? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added 3,000 people to the church. I saw a Pentecost was, um, we could say, the first missionary activity of the church in which 3,000 people were baptized together 
and receive the Spirit. That would be, he doesn't use the word confirmation. Confirmation comes centuries later. But that's what he's speaking about. He's speaking about baptism and receiving the Spirit through confirmation. And we call them the sacraments of Christian initiation. And that's what you'll receive at the Easter Vigil. Right? So baptism for those who weren't yet baptized, and then confirmation for, for the others. And so Pentecost would, that's why we call it the birthday of the church, because it's the first kind of mass um, entrance. All of these, though, are Jews, right? So they were Jews from different parts of the Roman Empire. But um, there was another meaning of the Feast of Pente Jewish Pentecost. It was also the Feast of First Fruits. So you had to bring to Jerusalem the first fruits of the harvests. I think that would be the barley harvest. And that's also symbolic. So um, what's the connection between the Jewish Pentecost and Christian Pentecost? So Jewish Pentecost had two meanings, the remembering the gift of the law um, and bringing one's, the first fruits of one's harvest to Jerusalem. So J Christian Pentecost, instead of the law written on tablets of stone, it's the gift of the Spirit who writes the law on the heart. It's a more difficult task. And you might wonder, well, we look out in the world and it doesn't seem everybody who's confirmed um, is, is already living a completely holy life. And that's true. And that's because the sacraments don't work by magic. They work more deeply in those who desire that effect more. In other words, our dispositions and aid the sacraments to get their full fruit. And the way to think about this is the parable of the sower, or even, even today's gospel. So if you were at church today, the gospel was of the talents, right? And so one person's given five talents, another two, another one. And what's the idea? The idea is that you would trade in with those talents and receive an increase. But one of them is afraid, right? and buries it in the ground and gets no fruit, no increase. And that's how it is with the sacraments. The fruit that they give depends also on our cooperation. Um, but in any case, um, for everyone who cooperates, the spirit is given to us to grow throughout our lives. Questions on that? Mm -hmm. Sure, they get their name from, I don't know the, the details of Pentecostalism, but sure. And it would be um, focusing on, um, probably on the charismatic dimension. So that's another term we use. Um, charism comes from the Greek word meaning um, gift, right? And so one of the things that the, um, the Holy Spirit gives, the, um, we can say the Spirit always gives love. Right? And that's the common effect, and that's what sanctifies us. And there are also um, gifts that we're going to talk about a little bit later of wisdom, understanding, counsel, fear of the Lord, um, piety. So seven gifts that we associate with um, confirmation that also are given to everyone. But then there are certain gifts that are given individually um, to one and not to another. So, I don't know, teacher, healer, um, Mother of God, whatever it may be. Yeah, different ways of forms of working in ministry. Um, and that's not given to everyone. 
And so when we speak of charismatic, it refers to um, having a devotion to the Spirit, but very often highlighting the different gifts. Okay. Other questions about Pentecost? So we say it's the birthday of the church. Simpl- not that the- Jesus had already founded the church by, um, by being born, first of all, by dying for her on, um, on Good Friday, by rising from the dead. But the church is complete when he gives the Spirit to her. Yeah, the Spirit builds, animates, sanctifies this, um, the church. Um, so next week, we, for two weeks, we're going to talk about the church. And so the church lives by the, the Holy Spirit. We tend to think of the church as an institution, a human institution. And that's true, too. But that's missing um, the dimension of mystery about the church, which is that the Spirit um, guides and animates and sanctifies the church. All right, so let's look at how the, um, one last thing about Pentecost. So it's, it's like the Jewish Pentecost because instead of um, the law being written on stone, it's written on our hearts. And then it's like Jewish Pentecost because it was the first fruits of not a physical harvest, but of the missionary harvest of souls, right? So Jesus told the apostles that they were, he was going to make them fishers of men. Right? And they left their fishing nets, etc., and followed Jesus. And so also we could speak of it as a kind of harvest that will last until the end of time. All right, let's look now at how the Spirit acts in our heart. So this is basically moving on to grace and justification. So the Spirit um, is given to us and inhabits in us through love. Um, not... Um, so we call that the indwelling. So Jesus promised this after the Last Supper. Right? So he had just instituted the Eucharist. He was about to go to Gethsemane to be captured and to be crucified. And so that's when he told them that he would send the Spirit to them who would dwell in them, like in a temple. But there's a condition. He says, if you love me, I will send right, the Spirit from the Father. And if you love me and keep my commands, we can expel the Spirit. Right? The Spirit is given to us, but the Spirit remains insofar as we don't gravely offend. In other words, a grave sin that has, um, that's grave matter that I know is bad and that I deliberately choose um, expels the Spirit, because he's the Spirit of holiness, right? But he comes back as soon as we repent. Um, and, um, and for Catholics, that's why there's the sacrament of confession, also so that the Spirit can return. Right, so the Spirit lives in us and guides us, right? And speaks if we listen, right, and have a life of prayer. And so we could say the Spirit is the master of prayer. And this is tragically why not all Catholics know the Spirit, right? Because we don't spend time to pray. So can the Holy Spirit move you to pray? Sure, absolutely. The Spirit moves us to pray, and then once we start, He 
guides our, spirit, our, our prayer. St. Paul speaks about it as groaning, right? The spirit groans with groans that I can't um, completely understand. And I think everybody experience. I mean, why are you here? Very often, some experience of prayer that the spirit moved you to do. Certainly that was, um, yeah, in my case, the first time I prayed, that wasn't me starting to pray. It's the spirit that moves you to prayer. And then he continues, right, to make that alive in you. Questions on that? It's not only the spirit, right? So the indwelling is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in, very often we attribute it to the Holy Spirit because he proceeds as the love of Father and Son, as, as we said before. Okay. So Jesus is also present, and so is the Father. So let's look at justification. So this is a, um, a Reformation issue that ended up being um, what divided the churches. So Luther thought this was the single most important doctrine, and since he um, disagreed with the, the Catholic understanding of justification, that was his um, justification for, um, for leaving, for separating from the church. And so it's important. Also, for that reason, important to understand, but just even in and of itself, it's um, justification um, refers to how do I get, um, how, well, one way to put it is how do I get saved? How do I get put in, into a state of friendship with God? How do I get into right relationship with him? All those are synonyms, all right? And so, yeah, that's like the most important thing in the world. How do I get into um, a relationship of sonship, of friendship um, with God so as to become his bride? And that's going to involve two things, the forgiveness of sins and the infusion of grace. All right, so it's like two sides of the same coin. So, it's, um, so the, this is from the Catechism. Um, the compendium, justification is the most excellent work of God's love. Right? The most excellent works of God's love because it puts us into a state by which if we die that way, we'll be with him forever in heaven. And if I don't die justified, I won't be with him forever in heaven. Right? So in that sense, it's as existentially the most important thing in our lives. And it's the most excellent work of his love to bring us into that relationship with him, right? And love is the only reason why he wants to do that, right? Why does he want to bring us into that relation? Because he loves us. And how much does he love us, right? That much. And so it, it's merciful, obviously, right? It's the, the supreme act of God's mercy. It's a greater act of God's mercy than, I don't know, healing someone from cancer, right? Because the person healed from cancer is still going to have to die. And the whole question is, are they going to die justified so in a relationship with God that will last forever? All right, so it's more important gift of God than any other that we could get. Right? It takes, so here's the negative part. It takes away sins. In other words, it takes away the obstacle that separates us. Right? Because there's something separating us from God if we're separate from him, and that's going to be sin that's grave 
and not repented of. That's what separates us from God. When we know, when conscience says, don't do that, and I do it anyway, and I stay in it. But if I repent, that's what um, brings about justification. And it's grace that leads us to repent. Right, so justification takes away our sins, so that's the negative, and makes us just and holy in his sight. That's the positive. All right? So that's why I say two sides of the same coin. You can't get one without the other. Right? It's impossible to have sins forgiven without grace being given. And it's impossible for grace to be given if my sins aren't grave sins taken away. The reason why I keep on saying grave sins is because not every sin is grave. Right? There are grave sins and there are lighter sins that we call venial. So Catholics use this language, mortal and venial. So a grave sin is the same as a mortal sin. The reason for the word mortal is because it kills that relationship. Right? What would be an example? I mean, I murder an innocent person. God loves that innocent person that I've murdered. That obviously is going to break a relationship, right? If I've harmed gravely, deliberately, someone that he loves, that's going to sever the relationship, right? And the same thing will go for anything that gravely harms our neighbor. And it can also be something that gravely harms my relationship with God, like um, not loving him, and hoping to him or believing him. But generally, it's going to be with regard to our neighbor. Okay, so justification takes away um, mortal sins and makes us just and holy in our whole being. And it is brought about by grace, the grace of the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus merited for us on Calvary, right? So when we looked at the atonement, we looked at Calvary. We said that Jesus on Cal dying on the cross merited every grace, that is, every gift leading to justification and following after justification given to human beings from the beginning of history to the end. Jesus on Calvary, in the middle of history, merited a gift that was given earlier in view of that and given to us later in view of that. Right, so every human being has benefited from Calvary. And the principal way that we benefit is by giving, being, receiving these graces that lead us to justification. Uh -huh. I have a question. Yeah, go for it. For a few minutes. Um, why is taking away our sins bad? Why is that? Taking away our sins bad. You said that. That taking away our sins was bad. And no, no. Oh, okay, positive and negative. Yeah, great question. Sorry, I didn't mean that. Um, it's, it's, there's a negative aspect that is removing something, but you can't just remove something. So this, what I meant is this. God can't take away our sins without at the same time giving something positive to take their place, as it were. Here's another way to think of it. Jesus gives a parable about um, someone who has... Um, um, seven evil spirits, seven demons, and he, they get expelled, and they kind of wander around looking for another place, and they find it's empty. And the, Oh, it's one spirit, right? He chases away one spirit, and, um, and since it's empty, he, the, that spirit invites seven others 
um, to, and they come back there. In, in other words, we can't have a void in our, we are, it's impossible for the human heart to be simply neutral. He's removing the bad and filling us with good. The reason why this is important is because that, this was a Reformation issue. Luther stressed principally the taking away the bad. But, and so this was a question debated at the Reformation. What is, is there a positive aspect to justification? So here are the two different views. I'm sorry, I'm gonna oversimplify just for time. Um, one way of thinking about, all right, Jesus forgives our sins simply by not looking at them. In other words, so is this forgiveness of sins simply the fact that, all right, my sin's still there. I'm just the same today as yesterday. But God, because I believe his promise, God's not going to look at that sin. And instead, he's going to look at his son and see the innocence of his son and account that justice to me. And he's going to not look at my sin. And that would be one way. Right, that's a parody, perhaps. But that's a, um, one way of looking at it. But what we're saying is the, not that. That justification is a change, a twofold change. There's something negative in me that needs to be taken away. But it, I can't just be neutral. It's got to be filled with something positive at the same time. All right, that's, that's what I meant to say. Thank, thanks for asking. And the positive is love. And the fact is, the negative was also a kind of love, but an, an unjust kind of love. Everyone, all of us, um, whenever we do something, right, so here, I'm teaching this class. Why am I teaching this class? All right, and because I volunteered for it. Why did I volunteer? Because I want to. Why do I want to do it? Ultimately, there's, if you keep on going with any chain, why did I have breakfast, et cetera? So I want health, and why do I want health? Because I want happiness, why do I, and what do I want in happiness? Who, ultimately, who do I want everything that I want for? If we think about that, who am I doing all the things that I do for? If my final answer is me, right, that's one possibility, um, that's not, uh, that's not, that's not the double commandment of love. Right? The double command of love is to love God above all, um, with all my heart, mind, and soul, above everything else, and my neighbor as Jesus did. Right? That's the double command. Um, and the fact is, every human being is either doing that, so what's the ultimate reason why I'm doing everything that I'm doing? Say, getting up in the morning, teaching this class, out of love for God. That's hopefully the answer, right? That's hopefully my, the, the reality. But there's another possibility. I could be living and doing everything I'm doing out of love for me. And it stops there, and that's the ultimate thing. And that's what needs, that's what justification is about. Transferring and making that change such that it's not as if we stop loving ourselves. There's a healthy self-love, and that is, right, love your neighbor as yourself. But I'm supposed to love myself ultimately for God and thus to love him above all things. That's what justification is about. That's why I can't be neutral because there's got to be some love. It's either going to be love of me ultimately to the point of contempt for God's commandments or it's going to be love of God to the point of sometimes sacrificial love and thus contempt for my own um, comfort. 
or um, physical well-being. Right? St. Augustine said this. I mean, I'm just repeating St. Augustine. He says, two loves have made two cities. He calls them cities. The city of God, which is the church here on earth and in heaven, and the city of man or Satan. And he says these two loves are the love of God to the point of contempt of self and the love of self to the point of contempt of God. All right. If I'm in the city of man or Satan, how do I get into the other city? That's what we're talking about. We call it justification. And it's passing from one love to another final love. Right? And um, it involves, therefore, this... Um, my sins aren't forgiven if I'm still attached to them. In other words, if I like them, if I want them, if I want to stay in them. That's what it means to be in a state. So we Catholics use this expression, a state of mortal sin. And that, that's where you don't want to be. But many of us are there for significant chunks of our life. And I'm in that state if I'm aware in conscience that I'm doing something gravely against God's will and I don't find the resolve to break from it and repent of it. And if I'm in that state, that sin can't be forgiven. And why can't it be forgiven? Because I'm holding on to it. In order for that to be forgiven, I have to want to let go of it and I have to want God to do that and change my heart. And he changes my heart by giving me the love of him above everything. Right? We, we pray for that, but he's the one I can't. So this is why no one can justify themselves because I can't give myself that love because it's from above. It's God's love. Right? Jesus says, love one another as I've loved you. Right? How has he loved us? That way. All right. How does he expect us to do that? Not, he does expect us to do it, right? So he, he wouldn't say it if he didn't expect us to do it. But how does he expect us to do it? Not by my own strength, but by his gift. All right? And we call that grace. Grace means two things. It means it makes us beautiful, gracious, and also that it's free, gratuitous. It's something that we can't, um, I can't buy it, right? I can't um, merit it by, I don't know, doing whatever, studying, um, doing push-ups, I don't know. Um, it's a free gift that God wants to give, but he wants there to be um, a disposition to receive it and a thirst for it. Uh-huh. How say it again? To our neighbor? Oh, how do we show it to our neighbor? In just all the little I mean it doesn't have to be big things. It's just simply two two actions can look completely the same from the outside. When we do something out of love for our neighbor, or if I do it out of self-interest for my neighbor, they might look outwardly the same. Jesus says it's even the littlest things. You give a glass. So he I mean he's He's making a, a kind of a point there, but he's, you just give a glass of water to somebody because they're a, a disciple of mine, you won't go without your reward. So that would be an example of an action moved by grace, giving somebody a glass of water. All right, there's water here. But I can also give somebody a glass of water, not out of love for God, but just 
naturally. And so it doesn't look different from the outside, but it is different because of the, um, the interior. Um, so love is something supernatural and invisible that we receive at justification from God. Obviously, if think of a better way to answer your question might be, you know, look at Mother, Mother Teresa. Right, so, but it, the point is, the reason why I didn't answer immediately that way is because you don't want to think that it's only these super heroic deeds that are coming out of grace. But St. Paul says simply, do everything in daily life, and that is, you know, um, whether you eat or drink or sleep or wake or um, whatever it may be, out of love for God, and everything's coming out of grace. I don't know if that... So justification is the beginning of this, um, but our whole life is meant to be a cooperation with that and therefore an increase, a growth, a development of that. And so Catholics use, um, we often speak about that as sanctification. Sanctification is simply the life of grace that hopefully is growing in our life, even if it doesn't look you know, outwardly extraordinary like Mother Teresa, but it's just maybe um, the ordinary things of life done out of love. Protestants, on the other hand, will sometimes distinguish justification and sanctification as um, two different things, whereas the Catholic way of thinking about them is really they're the same thing. Justification is the beginning, and sanctification is the whole process. All right? And sanctification would correspond to... Um, Sayings of Jesus, like, by your fruits, you will know the tree, right? If it's a good tree, it'll bear good fruits, and that is fruits of love. Okay, we distinguish two, there are different kinds, so we use this word grace. So grace always is a free gift of God, and it's given to us to bring us into relationship with him. I, that's what it's for. But we distinguish different kinds of grace. Hope I don't confuse you with this. But where did I put my pen? Oh, here it is. <laughs> Thank you. You were letting go. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Okay. So we speak of sanctifying grace. This is the opposite of being in a state of mortal sin. So sanctifying grace is that grace that sanctifies us, right? So the name simply means what it says. Um, a grace that abides. Right? So this grace is given um, to babies at baptism. Right? So this is the glory of baptism. Baptism gives this grace freely, right? You don't have to pay anything. And um, it abides. Unless there's only one way to lose it. How do I, what's that one way? Okay, but any mortal sin. So blaspheming the Holy Spirit would be a kind of mortal sin. So any mortal sin actually expels this abiding grace. But a mortal sin, let me say something about that. What's a mortal sin? It's got to be grave matter 
Uh, let me just give an example of this. We're going to talk about this lots of times because this is one of those fundamental notions. Um, grave matter means it's something really serious that conscience says is something serious. And let me just give you an example of something that's not that serious. Let's suppose I take this book, sorry. Um, I'm just going to put this in my bag. Sorry about that. All right. That's theft. All right. Is that good? There's a commandment against that, right? Do not steal. Um, but I know that, look, you're, you're going to forgive me. It's not a big deal. That's just a little book, and it was given to you in the first place, probably. And, um, and so I'm just thinking, all right, that's theft, but it's not grave matter. But what if I were to take your credit card and empty your bank account and leave you totally helpless? That would not be something I can think he's just going to forgive me, and it's just nothing. In other words, if I steal something that takes away a person's livelihood, that's gravely damaging that person. All right, it's not as bad as killing them, but it's, it can be pretty bad. And similarly, you know, if I say some lie about you that's basically meaningless um, for a joke, I think you'll forgive me, but if I were to lie in such a way as to gravely defame you, to falsely accuse you of, I don't know, child abuse or something like that, that can ruin your life. That, too, would be grave matter. I'm just giving some examples. Rape, obviously, grave matter, etc. cetera. Um, everything that gravely goes against charity, gravely, is going to be grave matter. If I do it knowing, so I have to have full knowledge. If I don't know that it's wrong, um, this is why a child, before the age of reason, they can't do a mortal sin because they don't know it's wrong. All right? And then I have to do it with full deliberation. All right, anyway, this, that's what we mean by um, a mortal sin. We'll come back to this later. Um, if I've done that, um, this full knowledge, by the way, is in conscience, right? My conscience has to tell me that. If I do that, that's incompatible with loving God above all things. Because the only reason I would do that is if I'm loving myself above all things. Does that make sense to everyone? That's why it expels God and expels his grace. But I can get it back by repenting. But I'll need to be justified again. All right? And that may have to happen several times or numerous times in our lives. Right? But the key thing is that we end up in a state of grace. They don't have the sanctifying grace. That's right. That's what... They are not saved. That's... Ah. Um, hold that question till later. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that we can't know. So uh, let me give you the short answer on that. A baby who dies before baptism... Um, a baby, let me do the other. Let's imagine a baby who's just been baptized and, God forbid, gets, in, you know, gets cancer or um, heart, some failure, whatever, and dies before the age of reason. We can be certain that they go immediately to heaven. And the reason for that is that holy, sanctifying grace and the Holy Spirit is abiding, and that child can't kick out the Holy Spirit, Right? That child's incapable of doing mortal sin because they're not at the age of reason. Therefore, we're certain they go straight to heaven. What about a baby who dies without baptism? That's a difficult question, but the catechism answers it very simply. We entrust them to the mercy of God. 
with hope, and we could, we could add John Paul II as with sure hope. It's different than baptism claims them immediately with certainty. Here, we're entrusting them to the mercy of God, but that's not a bad thing. God's mercy is how big? Infinite. All right, so that's why it's sure hope there. So we don't despair of babies who die before the age of reason, even if they didn't get baptized. All right, but we want to baptize them if we can. Great question. Yeah. Okay, so th this grace that we're talking about is habitual, right? That just is a fancy word for abides. Right? And so in children, it, that grace simply abides. They can't uh, expel it. But when we get to be um, adults, yes, we are capable of doing grave sin. Right? And look at this. It sanctifies us and divinizes us. This is serious. Sanctifying grace, it's not just, oh, makes me a nice person or something. It makes us filled with sharing in God's own nature. So sanctifying or divinizing or deifying is all the same thing. And I can say this, but I can't take in what I teach this. Right? I have a whole class at the seminary on grace. And I like to say, I don't know what I'm talking about, and you don't either. <laughs> and that's universal because this is super mysterious. Because we're human beings, and yet we can share in God's own nature and in God's own love. But that's why we say it's gratuitous. There's nothing I can do of myself to bring it about or to, to keep it even. I can't hold on to it. It just simply abides unless I push it out through my own free choice. But on the same side of that coin, I can hope to receive it. Oh, totally. Absolutely. We can ask for it. And we're going to talk about this later. But let me just say something. It, it, we receive, the ordinary way we receive this is by baptism. But those of you who are not yet baptized, you can receive it by anticipation. And the way you receive it by anticipation is right now desiring it. Desiring to receive God's grace. And, but again, it's got two sides. I can't rightly re desire to receive his grace without repenting that means being sorry for what I'm aware of um, that is a mortal sin. Right? So repenting of those mortal sins and desiring his grace simply because God is good and I want to love him, and he will justify anyone who does that. And we call it baptism of desire. It's through baptism, but it's anticipating the effect even before you've received the sacrament. And it also goes for those who've never heard of it. They too can receive that grace. Otherwise, we'd have to think that all non-Christians are simply damned. And we don't, that's not what we believe. We believe they too can be justified by desire and repentance. Oh, sure, absolutely. Okay, that's the same as the question we spoke about before. So they can't... Great question. Let me say this here from the front. Um, what about someone who's mentally disabled? Or just even simply anyone below the age of reason? They can't have baptism of desire personally because they don't yet 
Um, um, to, to make that kind of desire requires being at the age of reason. Um, so, but on the other hand, they don't have any sins to repent of, and we simply entrust them to the mercy of God. And therefore, it's not their desire, it's the church's desire, we could say. All right? So no, we don't need to be worried about them. But it's a beautiful thing to give them baptism. And um, right? so we, Jesus doesn't want baptism withheld from those who are um, mentally handicapped or, or handicapped in any other way. All right? Dr. Feingold, mm -hmm. the sacrament of baptism works differently than the baptism of desire because as long as the person is not opposed to receiving the sanctifying grace in the sacrament, they will receive That's it. Right. Even if they're mentally handicapped. That's right. So for those below the age of reason, whether it's they, they're you know, one year old or maybe they're an adult but never... Um, got the use of reason because of a mental handicap, um, they're all in that situation that we spoke of that they can't be personally desiring it. Um, and we entrust them to the mercy of God. But all the more, um, we want them to be baptized so that right here and now, they can receive that divine life. Yeah. Okay. And we can't directly experience this. So it's not as if we don't experience anything. At a conversion, we experience our repentance and our love. And that's enough. But we, we're not going to experience, ah, I got justified you know, on Tuesday or something. And it's not because it's supernatural. OK, that's sanctifying grace. There's another kind of grace. Um, what did I do? Here it is that we call actual grace. Sorry for all these terms. Um, actual grace is something different. Actual grace is a, um, a push, as it were, um, a God moving our faculties in the here and now. And that's going to have two parts to it, illumination and attraction. So how to, based on what we said before, you might have been, come up with a problem. And that would be um, justification or sanctifying grace isn't in somebody who's in mortal sin. How do they get moved to repentance if they don't have and can't have that sanctifying grace as long as they're in the state of mortal sin? Um, and the answer to that question is there's another kind of grace, thanks be to God, that touches us while we're still in a state of sin. And it'll be an illumination. So the two parts have to do with our intellect and our will. Grace touches our, our intellect, our mind, by enabling us to see something that we hadn't seen before. So basically, every conversion experience that, so I told you a little about my conversion experience at the beginning of class. So I'm lifelong atheist, never believed in God, never really thought that much about it as I should have. But one day when I mentioned that my wife, she was pregnant, she was having this terrible anxiety, she said she didn't want to live, that, it hit me, wow, if God doesn't exist to love her totally, life doesn't make sense. All right, what's that? that that's a grace. I hadn't been thinking that way before, and suddenly I see that, 
That's not from me, right? And all of us have had experiences like that. That's not from me, right? We sometimes call it a Holy Spirit moment or a God moment. And that's what we call here an illumination, to see something. And it could be something different. It could be I'm, supposed, I'm living in a, I've got a habit of some grave sin, right? Some whatever, an addiction to whatever. And it can happen that, all right, I'm living in this. I'm not thinking about how terrible it is. And then a person hits bottom, and suddenly they see, I've, I've got to get out of this, right? This is killing me, or this is killing other people. <laughs> and, um, and that, too, can be an illumination, an illumination to see that my destructive behavior is that, right, is sin and something I want to escape from. And then, so that's the illumination part. So it can be, again, positive saying God loves me, or it can be something negative, but really good, and that is to see that the sin that I'm in is bad. Not just theoretically, but really. Um, and basically these illuminations, it's one thing to know something in the blackboard. A lot of us know things like, oh yes, this sin is bad. I know it on the blackboard, but I don't know it concretely. Or otherwise I would stop doing it. And, and so God helps us by illuminating our conscience and then attracting our heart. It's not enough just to illuminate my mind, right? Because I might still, all right, all right now I know even more that it's wrong, but if I'm not attracted, I might continue with it. But he attracts our hearts to himself. Right? Jesus says, no one can believe in me unless the Father draw him, attract him. That's what we're talking about, that kind of grace. Right? So we call it an actual grace because it's actual in a particular time and place in our lives. Right? This came today and wasn't there yesterday. At a certain time and place. And... Um, this doesn't immediately, usually, right, it's rare that that immediately converts a person. Normally, the conversion process takes time, right? It's one thing for me to say, ah, seeing consciousness is bad, but I don't yet immediately have the resolve, let's say, to break with it. Or let's say I see that it's something, I get an illumination about God exists or about the Catholic Church, and maybe I put off entering RCA, and maybe people put this off. There are a lot of people who, um, I mean, for all kinds of reasons, have had some illumination about the truth of the faith and continue for years without acting on it. And all right, maybe, maybe they were, could have acted um, more quickly. But very often, it's simply that conversion is a process. And there's a phrase that we use a lot at the seminary, if it's not slow, it's not human. Because, I mean, the miraculous conversion happens overnight and never, that, that doesn't usually happen in human life. And, I mean, Paul, all right, he had a conversion like that. But that's miraculous. And, and so, very often, we're going to need many actual graces before we um, repent. So, suppose I, um, the illumination is to be aware that I'm in a habit of sin of grave sin, and I see it's bad, and I want to break from it, and I don't find the strength. St. Augustine wrote about this in his Confessions. Sorry, i got to go a little faster. He said, um, Lord, at a certain point, make me chaste, but not yet. He saw, 
but didn't yet find the resolve, right? He needed more actual graces. So seeing that wasn't yet conversion, right? And so sanctifying grace comes when we resolve to break from it out of love. That would be baptism of desire, okay? And at that very moment, this will kick in. Right? So very often in human life, we need many actual graces. All right, the baby doesn't, right? The baby got the sanctifying grace without any actual graces because the, ba the baby can't receive actual graces, right? Because you need to be at the age of reason to get the actual graces. And so we need actual graces before conversion and after conversion all through our life to do anything. So basically, when we do anything in the spirit, when we do anything out of love, even the little things that we were talking about before, and all of that is aided by actual graces. And we can be assured that God will give us many, 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 many actual graces to grow closer to him and to bring others closer to him. All right? So we always need both kinds. Does that make sense? Actual graces in the here and now and habitual grace is what we um, don't experience directly but abides with us, sharing in God's life. So grace precedes, here, so here's the question that maybe we can end with. Um, how does this relate with human freedom? It, it is in no way in conflict with human freedom. It's not in conflict because when, when this illumination happens and this attraction happens, we're still free to respond, as we said, more quickly, more slowly, more enthusiastically, less enthusiastically. This all involves our freedom. And then... This disposition, how we cooperate with grace, is what determines um, when we will get um, sanctified and how much we will give ourselves over to that process. So grace always respects human freedom and doesn't overpower us, but it attracts, it knocks, right? Jesus in the gospel so often speaks about knocking, and um, that implies that we have some freedom there. Right? In other words, we can resist grace. And this is contrary to um, traditional Calvinism, right? which thinks of grace, if it comes, as irresistible. And I think human experience shows that can't be true. Right? There are so many times, I, I know in my life, in which I've resisted God's grace. And then other times, that I resisted less. And that's somewhat mysterious, but that's our freedom. And yes, and so the last point is, so this also divides Catholics and Protestants. Um, no one can merit getting justified. That's from above. But once we're in a state of grace, the little things in the Christian life do merit an increase. In other words, God wants that seed to grow, right? And today's gospel is a good illustration, right? He gives the talents so that they can grow, and to the person who has more, more is given, right? It seems counterintuitive. It's not, you know, like uh, social welfare that maybe wants to equalize. Grace doesn't work by equalizing. God's grace wants to um, bring them um, to more abundance. So yes, we can merit, but what we're meriting is something we already have to grow. We're not meriting getting it in the first place. Questions on that? So let's end here, and if anybody has any questions, you can ask me after class. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God.
for the gift of your grace. May it take root in us and grow um, to, to yield a hundredfold. We ask this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, they keep